So welcome. You're listening to Energy 360. I'm Frank Barastro, your host this week, and today's topic is Iran. And in addition to a host of provocative actions and statements over the last couple of weeks, we'll also be looking at political tensions that made headlines earlier in the year, the upcoming decision to continue to waive U.S. sanctions, the fate of the JCPOA, and implications for oil market. And joining us today to shed light on these and other issues are uh, Cliff Kupchin, the chairman of the Eurasia Group and a longtime specialist in both Iran and Russia, and my fellow CSIS colleague, John Alterman, the Brzezinski Chair in Global Security and Geostrategy and Director of our Middle East Program. So Cliff and John, thanks for joining us today. All right, so let me start with just kind of a general proposition. Um, we can start with drone strikes. We can start with uh, the economic uh, upheaval that took place earlier in the year. But what's your assessment of what's going on in Iran today? And what are the implications for both the political side and the region going forward? Cliff, let me start with you. Domestically, Iran is undergoing moderate but significant turmoil. President Rouhani is under trouble from the hardliners, under pressure from the hardliners. He's got a tough rotoho at home to create jobs. Meanwhile, the hardliners are strong in foreign policy. Rouhani never had control over foreign policy, and a lot of people don't get that. Regional policy was always the purview of the Revolutionary Guards and Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei. So that there's an unstable balance of forces right now, each side trying to play to its sweet spot, Rouhani to the economy, the Revolutionary Guard showing a tough Iran abroad, and so you have an unruly and quite difficult to contain and deal with Iran. And that's where we are. John? Um, I think the Iranians suffer a little bit from the soft bigotry of low expectations. They, they I think, are, are feel that the world is against them. Things in the region are largely moving in their direction. They certainly have a serious foothold in Syria. Uh, the U.S. effort to run the table in the Middle East has clearly failed. They are putting forward relatively low effort in Yemen and driving the Saudis crazy. Uh, it, it seems to me that on the domestic economy, that they still have the United States to blame for any lack of progress, persistent problems. So I think if you start from the idea that they live in a world of lots of enemies. I think the Iranian leadership feels they're playing a difficult hand reasonably well. A lot of things are breaking their way. And frankly, in Iranian terms, this is what success looks like. It doesn't look like success on Western terms. It looks like you are fighting for your survival. But actually, the last several years have been going okay. The economy is getting better. The region is, is opening up to them rather than closing down to them. And this, this Gulf effort to isolate them doesn't seem work. to be working. Right. So from a foreign policy perspective, I would totally agree. It's just like for very little investment, minimal investment, they've opened up some other areas. And they have gotten to um, pursue objectives that they otherwise wouldn't have done. On the economic side, how serious, though, was like the um, protest earlier in the year? The Real has devaluated – the government took away some programs that the, the rank-and-file people like. This is different from the Green Revolution, right? So uh, talk about that for a second. 
These protests were a completely different phenomenon. They were in the regions. They were disorganized. They were about a single issue, economics by and large. And they did not, they did not uh, invade, in fact, Tehran. And unless you win Tehran, you really can't carry the country. That being said, I think that Iran faces just a nip short of a domestic economic crisis. I think it's really serious. As John said correctly, the growth rates are, are robust. They're around 4% and the IMF projects that they will remain around 4%. But that's not really all that relevant. Unemployment generally is around 11%. Among those under 25, it's around 24%. Those are big numbers first. Secondly, the headline growth may be okay, but that's oil-driven. The non-oil economy is not growing. The non-oil economy, SMEs, small and medium-sized enterprises, that's where you create jobs. That's where Rouhani is failing. And as long as he continues to fail, he's going to remain vulnerable. So I think Iran is doing quite well internationally. The JCPOA, the nuclear deal goes down, that may change. But for right now, they're doing okay internationally. It's a very, very complicated situation at home. So even on the energy front, I would argue that the energy investments, so the threat of, of sanctions, right, they're, they're back to production and export levels, pre-sanction levels. Um, domestic demand is rising a little bit. They've reduced the amount of exports. Uh, the places where they are exporting to has shifted a bit, and the onset of sanctions could impact that as well. I want to bring John back into the conversation. John, we have been talking about the the economic side of what's going on in Iran and how, whether that's destabilizing or not, enough for Rouhani, given where he wants to take the country. Again, I, I think Rouhani is um, expecting that this is going to be a struggle. And I think Rouhani has identified greater integration with the world as his cause. I think it is a cause that Iranians are still on board with. And I think, frankly, he has a lot to show for his efforts to do that. Iran is more integrated in the rest of the world economically. Uh, if there is going to be, and we'll talk about the JCPOA in a bit, but if there are going to be modifications to it, then there will be benefits that accrue to the Iranian economy that he will take credit for. So it feels to me like if you start from the premise that you're fighting a long-term war, and powerful countries are against you, and you can't be totally successful, then even partial success looks like a victory, and Rouhani is trying to claim that victory. Okay. All right, so let's turn to the JCPOA. Well, if I could just add sure. one thought. I think I have a slightly different view about Iranian expectations. I do think they suffered from the soft bigotry of low expectations until the JCPOA. And then I think they got into a wicked... Huntingtonian phase of rapidly rising expectations. And that's a very different dynamic. I, I think the average Iranian expected the nuclear deal and better relations with the world to affect their pocketbooks. That simply has not happened. As Deputy Foreign Minister Abbas Aragchi said a few days ago, if European banks do not come into the energy sector, do not invest in Iran, this deal is off for us. Now, he could well have been bluffing, but this is a business deal for Iran, one that involves expectations of the population and growth rates. And and if those aren't met, I think Rouhani has got a lot of explaining to do, whether it's his fault or not. But it's still an issue that I think the, the 
public and the leadership is largely on board with the idea of integrating the global economy and not having the resistance economy and, and self-reliance and all those things. And I think that Rouhani is able to point to the U.S. government as the problem rather than the Iranian government. I mean, if, if you're looking at compliance, the perception is the Iranians complied with the requirements of the JCPOA. The U.S. is trying to change the requirements of the JCPOA. And my guess is that politically, Rouhani isn't blamed for striking a bad deal. Rouhani continues to benefit from being the person who said, yes, we should have a more integrated economy with the rest of the world. If it hasn't gone that way, it's not completely his fault. And I don't think people are turning away from him because it's not a better alternative to integrate the economy with the rest of the world or, or to improve the economy. But at the end of the day, going back to, to Cliff's point, if, if you don't see, if you have the expectations of economic improvement and it doesn't happen, how long do you give that to play out? Well, it's a question of what, you, what your alternative is to the course that Rouhani has charted. Um, and I'm not sure somebody has articulated a, a persuasive alternative case. Alternative case. So Rouhani benefits from that, even if he can't. But I, I, you know, the other piece about Rouhani, which I think is really important to note, is Rouhani has been probably one of the most skilled political actors in Iran for decades. He is at the heart of the regime. He's trusted by the insiders. He is somebody who uh, was given much more ambit than others in the system. And I, and I think that he is not a normal politician in the Iranian case. I think he is a, a a knife fighter, and, and I think he is likely to have and is certainly conscious of having a better end of his second term than any of his predecessors who have all left their second term in, in uh, humiliation. Yeah, maybe. I mean, you know, uh, I'm a kind of a simple academic, grew up in the South, and, and for me, the bottom line here is the Ronald Reagan question. You, you, you know, Muhammad, are you better off today than you were yesterday? And the answer is pretty uniformly no. And I think that's a problem. So, all right. So part of the economic, um, at least the taking people to the streets outside of Tehran, take your point, it wasn't only um, – focused on the economic uh, uh, upheaval and the lack of satisfaction on where they were going. But there were, at least initially, uh, concerns about spreading to the, the challenging the clerics and the supreme leader. That have legs, not have legs. We haven't seen it extended. That happened earlier in the year. But I, I don't think it's got short-term legs. I think uh, if I were the clerics and the supreme leader, I'd be looking over my shoulder a lot more now than I would before the protests. What happened in the protests essentially, and we know now, is that in the clerical-dominated city of Mashhad, uh, the hardliners fired up a rally to go after Rouhani on economics. What then happened across the country is everybody doesn't like the regime said, hey, hell, there's a party out there. You know, I'm going out in the streets, you know, you know, the wine's good and I'm going. And, and a lot of that turned in from anti-economic to anti-regime. So what we saw is that there is a barely latent wellspring of real contempt for, for the leadership among the population. And that taught me by surprise anyway. 
And I'm sure it caught the leaders by surprise. Now, I don't think that, that, that these protests are likely to happen again, partly because Iran's massive repressive machinery, if you add up the, the informal and the formal, uh, you're talking about three to 400,000 troops that will use force, unlike in many countries. So I know they were likely to see it again, but I think it was a real shot into the bow of the leadership that they got. And you know, the other piece is you look around the Middle East and you look at populations that have gotten rid of their governments and a lot of them aren't better off. And while that doesn't have the same impact as it does in the Arab world where you can watch the news without subtitles, Arabs can understand what other Arabs are saying without being translated, and Iranians speak Farsi. It's not Arabic. But even so, I think the the, the sense that people have is much less will throw caution to the wind and see what happens because countries that have gone down that road recently have not had a lot of success. Fared well. Right. All right. So you both have mentioned it. Let's turn to the nuclear accord. So President Trump, for the second time now, uh, a couple of months ago, failed to certify Iran's compliance. He didn't decertify, but he failed to certify. He did not, however, revoke the waivers of the sanctions. Um, at the same time, he made clear that this was the last time he was going to play that card. And while he was pushing for uh, new sanctions from the Europeans, um, who seemed that support is like tepid at best on some of this stuff, that he said he wouldn't next time when the sanctions come up, that he wouldn't waive them again. So what are we looking at? Is this just the broad narrative? And when the, the clock moves to the spring, we're going to see sanctions waived yet again, but we're in the process of working with the legislature, with the Congress, and with our foreign allies to see if we can reinstate or, or propose some additional impediments for Iran, or are we going to see the rubber hit the road here in the next couple of months? In my view, this president is widely underestimated for being a normal Republican. He's not. I think he's very close to Steve Bannon, and that means he's in significant part predisposed to destroying institutions. TPP and Paris are good examples. He can bring the deal down. I think that's real. Right now, to cut to the chase, I think this is about the U.S. Congress. The U.S. Congress wants the Europeans to go first. The Europeans want the U.S. Congress to go first. My understanding from talking to people I know the administration is that they really don't expect that much of the Europeans. They expect some movement from Europe on ballistic missile sanctions. They expect some movement on increased verification. But they know the Europeans aren't anytime soon going to commit to making the provisions of the nuclear deal permanent. What is a necessary condition in my mind for Trump to again waive the sanctions is for the U.S. Congress to pass legislation meeting all four of his main demands, no sunset, permanent restrictions, verification, and ballistic missile sanctions. If that doesn't happen, I think we could lose the deal. I think it will happen in a Chinese fire drill uh, in, in late April, early May. And, you know, my gut on a very close call is this will uh, this deal will outlive May 12th. John, thoughts? Uh, um, I think the president loves uncertainty. I think the president sees uncertainty as a tool and – I think the president, I, I agree with Cliff. I think the, the president is going to try to ride the uncertainty as much as he can to try to move toward an outcome that he wants. If, if the deal falls apart, that becomes a certainty. 
And my guess is there will be a, 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 a bias, conscious or unconscious, to try to keep it, as long as it's moving, to try to keep it moving in a Positive decent direction. direction. Yeah, because there's implications here for other things, right? Whether it's North Korea or what we do with Turkey or what we do with Russia. Well, and if the deal falls apart, there are yeah. implications. You know? John, do you think that congressional legislation is going to move? I, what's your sense? You know, I, I have a very hard time understanding what's happening in Congress. I have, a very hard, I have an even harder time understanding what's happening between the White House and Congress. That's a hard bet for me to place. But we are at the beginning of March now, right? And, and if we're looking at early May, I mean, there was already some discussion uh, yesterday about uh, whether or not we would actually have time for an infrastructure bill, which is the major new administration initiative. So Congress seems to think that they're busy with things, and, and they've pushed this down the road before. I guess, Frank, I worked up there for 10 years, and when faced with a deadline and a deal coming down, these guys start acting like the ever-ready bunny, and they just start moving. So I, I think there is time, but this is about, you know, Corker, Cotton, Menendez, and, and whether they can get together on some key provisions automaticity of snapback of sanctions. There's a lot of daylight between key players right now. So that's on the congressional side. What about in terms of the other members of the P5? They're going to try to do everything they can to keep the deal intact. They will feed Trump as much as they can. Whether they will feed him enough to stop him from detonating the deal is a question. But the other members of the P5 want nothing to do with renegotiation. They're going as far as they think they have to to keep the deal alive. And I think the president sees them chasing after him as one of his policy successes. So he's going to to continue to to harbor this uncertainty as a tool, as a negotiating tool to to get concessions from the Europeans. The question is under what circumstances the Iranians would feel a need to give concessions to, to the president. I think the Iranians don't feel that need. And the other piece um, is the extent to which if the Europeans and the other P5 members have to give things to the Iranians, will the president take that as a defeat rather than a victory? And since this is Energy 360, just on the energy implications, I, the two things that are, I think, most common for most of the energy analysts is that the the chilling effect that re-imposition of sanctions has been and whether that would undermine the ability to, to get investment, not so much from U- U.S. companies because they're not involved, but from the European companies that have at least expressed uh, an interest. So the Italians would like the terms to be better. The French would love to get in there, but they're concerned about snapback provisions and, and how those secondary sanctions would, would hit them, even with partners in other parts of the world going after other projects. The notion going back to the the first round of sanctions when we had multilateral sanctions, so Iran's production is about where it was, right? We're at 3839. Their exports are at about the 2122 million barrel a day level, maybe 2425 if you count condensates, but the distribution around the world has changed. And so there's still a healthy chunk that's going to Europe, more is going to Asia. And so if sanctions were applied, I think on an international basis, you'd just see a shift. I think there was a, a common misperception the first time around was that the U.S. Uh, light production actually uh, benefited uh, or pushed people towards being able to impose sanctions on Iran. I don't think that's what happened. I think the Saudis replaced Iranian production, U.S. production backed out, 
Algerian, Nigerian, which replaced Libyan production that used to go to, to uh, Europe. So we're kind of in a different place. Um, but the, the new investment kind of undermines the economic and delays the economic expansion. Does, Frank, does, um, does uncertainty over this and a, a sort of very visible uncertainty about what's going to happen with the United States – uh, what's going to happen, whether Europe can, can bridge the deal. Does that affect markets at all? Does it affect anybody's thinking about investment? So I think so. I think it does on the investment cycle because you're looking at long-term investments and especially coming out of a trough on energy prices. Companies seem to be more disciplined, at least in the near term, about where they put their dollars and how fast they're going to see a return on investment. So if you've got another area where you'd like to invest and you see this one sitting on ice for a while, that would impact what you pick and choose as your partner. You also have legacy assets in places that you'll still propose. On the global stage, I would argue right now, Venezuela is the big one that people are looking at, that if we lost that, we couldn't replace it right away. Um, but we still have Nigeria, Libya, Syria, uh, the GCC uh, disruptions. So what does that look like on markets? And I think over the last quarter, Finally, geopolitics has entered in and, and pushed the momentum on price back up. But we're also now in the first quarter again where refinery turnarounds take effect. So I think prices are going to come back down. But we're, we're in this stage of um, uh, up and down prices for the next several months. So we'll see what OPEC does. We'll see what U.S. producers do. We had a conference here earlier in the week where we talked about the range of projections on the U.S. And it's from 600,000 to a million seven this year alone. That's phenomenal range, right? Yeah. Not very helpful, frankly. Yeah, very what, helpful. Yeah. Uh, what would it take for major companies to feel comfortable investing in the Iranian industry at this point? I mean, what kind of signal would it take from the United States that, that people would feel? So I think there would have to be a general agreement that the JCPOA is going to stay in place that the Congress isn't going to react with snapback or additional new sanctions soon that could have effect on joint ventures with your joint venture partners. And then I do think it, it's still uh, inherent on the Iranians to come forward with a contract or terms of a contract that people would find to be attractive. So on that, Frank, because uh, I think we're starting to get to the heart of the heart here, I mean, I have a good Iranian friend that keeps telling me that you Americans, you're so arrogant, you think you can hurt our economy worse than we can hurt it ourselves. <laughs> and, you know, the IPC, the Iran Petroleum Contract, as amended by the parliament or as gutted by the parliament, depending how you want to talk about it, came out, you know, short, came out short on bookable reserves, on the kinds of things that IOCs and majors are looking for. It's just not very attractive. So, and I actually think that the, their target, so this is their baseline target, they want it to be slightly better than Iraq with more political risk, right? So that's not going to attract it, it, big investors. You know, capital's a coward, and Iranians didn't make capital feel much more comfortable. That, that would be the first thing I'd like to add. Secondly, the risk hanging over the snapback of U.S. secondary sanctions in the eyes of the IOCs, non-American IOCs that I talk to, is enormous. Mm -hmm. You even see it's public. It's fair to talk about. Total couldn't move money in is having second thoughts. Total and the Italians have been in the forefront of getting into the sector. Uh, so, so we have a real crimp on, an, on investment. The third point that to me is relevant is 
if we do get, as I think we would get if this deal goes down, a reimposition of U.S. sanctions on the CBI, the Central Bank of Iran, Iranian crude will come off the market. How much is a good question. I don't think the Russians will play. I don't think the Chinese will play. I think the Indians are a big question. Yeah, you might get half a million max off the market. You're not going to get the whole thing off the market like last time. Right. So, so that's what I mean. You're going to so there's, ship there's, there's the two, Yeah, exactly. There's two things. First, we've got a very well-supplied market. Second, you're not going to lose all the Iranian crude. So in, in, in my view, I think actually there is something of an Iran premium back in. I think at least on financial markets, people are worried. They've been jumping the gun a little bit. They're not getting the big picture that this is a very well-stocked market and that the whole 1.2 of increased Iranian exports and sanctions is very unlikely to come off. That said, stocks are dwindling down. The market's coming back and rebalanced. So it's different qualities of crude that may be in either a short or excess supply. So let me turn to a, a kind of a bigger picture just on a regional basis. So you've brought in Russia and China here now. They'll likely continue investments. Europeans may or may not, probably not. What does this do to the, the remaking of the map of the Middle East? Um, we've seen now uh, Turkey, Iran, and Qatar be aligned on certain things. We've seen the Saudis pick sides on certain things. But now we've seen Saudi Arabia and, and Russia be willing to sign uh, joint venture deals, including in the Arctic. <laughs> and China has ambitions. Um, how does this all shift and how does it all sort out? You know, it, it feels to me like people are still exploring what the new normal right. looks like. We are clearly not in a Cold War environment. We're not in a unipolar environment. The, the quality of U.S. leadership is clearly different, and the ability of the United States to, to decide where the lines are drawn and what the terms will be is different. I think the Chinese are quite actively across Central Asia trying to figure out what a different set of rules would look like. I don't think they actually know what a different set of rules look like, but I think they're exploring it. And to me, this is a, a time of not of necessarily conflict, but uncertainty over what this new world will look like. Um, the United States, to a remarkable degree, affects markets more by what it seems to do at home in terms of producing energy than the kinds of rules it imposes on the rest of the world. And that's a big change. The United States had been considered by a lot of countries in the Gulf as the guarantor of stability. And now the United States is the driver of instability because of, of uh, tight oil. To a point. And so... Partly that drives a lot of U.S. allies into thinking we have to supplement the U.S. relationship with other relationships. We have to reach some sort of understanding with the Russians. Uh, the Chinese are the only growing market in the world. And, and it seems to me that there's there's an exploration of what these supplemental ties look like and, frankly, an uncertainty over what the U.S. is going to do. I was just in the Gulf last week, and there I think there's a lot of – uh, confidence that comes from a sense that the United States is going to confront the Iranians. Uh, I'm not sure that confidence is especially well-placed, and I'm not sure that the only challenge facing Middle Eastern governments comes from the Iranians. My sense is it's a more diverse set of issues, but I'm not sure they're seeing it in a more 
diverse context. Frank, I think there is one secular change that we should all be aware of, which is that at least as long as Putin's around, and that may be a very long time, the Russians are back in the Middle East. Yes. Uh, I saw Putin in October. He makes very clear his view that if you want a reliable partner and you're a Middle Eastern country, dial 1-800-MOSCOW. Forget about Washington. They're out of the game. Uh, You know, he's more right than wrong in my view. I think the Russians from Syria to Saudi to Qatar, they're playing both sides against the middle to Egypt. They're kind of everywhere. And and they're not going away. And for Putin, who is half post-Soviet, half Soviet, the restoration of the Kremlin's global power is key. He's going to double down on that. I also think, in conclusion, that the uneasy alliance, cooperation, partnership between Saudi and Russia is real. It's likely to continue. The cuts will be extended, I think, the OPEC cuts and non-OPEC cuts indefinitely. Russia will cheat, but they won't detonate detonate the restraint. And this is a seismic change between two countries that really had nothing to do with each other are now cooperating. And the Russians want Saudi money. The Saudis want Russian oil cooperation. And I think this will stick. So I think the one feature to me of the Middle East that is concretely and tangibly new is Russia's role in the region. Absolutely. And again, just in the case of Iran or similar to it, for a small investment, they've made a bigger footprint, right? Well, you know, if somebody told you five years ago that, that Russian-Egyptian trade would be higher than U.S.-Egyptian trade, you'd say it's absolutely crazy, except that's the fact. Yeah. Um, and the fact as well is that the Russians have a fairly, I think, open relationship with the Israelis, despite the depth of the U.S. relationship with Israel. And, and the, I, I, to, to pick up on Cliff's point, the old idea that you had to choose between the U.S. and Russia, I think, has completely eroded. And it's not so much balancing between the two, but it's building up a a portfolio of relationships of which the U.S. is still the core holding, but Russia is a really important holding as well. And I don't think Americans are, given how used we are to the Cold War maps of there are friends or are not, all of our friends, all of our allies, our most intimate allies, are developing more complicated and sophisticated relationships with Russia because they think that serves their interests. And I'm not sure we've wrapped our head around what it means, both for our our relationships with these countries, but more broadly, how we engage with the world. So as we head into March Madness for the NCAA, I've always thought that, that at least in the recent past, that the U.S., in terms of uh, foreign participants or partners, the notion was we had the best uniforms, we had the best equipment, you want to be on our team. I think that's changing. Other people have good equipment now, and they provide different things to different countries at different times so that you can actually spread the wealth a little more. But I think that's a, it's a fact change for the United States because, in part, we've created this vacuum and other people have taken advantage of it. Well, and I think our, our default is people having to choose sides. Right. And I think the, the reality is, is maybe it is modern portfolio theory that countries are feeling to a greater extent than I can ever recall that you want an array of relationships 
and you want to balance them and rebalance them dynamically. Uh, and I'm not sure that, that not only our foreign policy, I'm not sure our style of diplomacy has, has fully adopt, adapted to, to that very new world where it's not just about lining up a, a list of U.S. allies and ticking the boxes. It's, it's countries seeking more than ever to balance between what seem to be um, the countries seem to have inconsistent relationships, but it's possible to have inconsistent relationships that actually advance your security. And I think we're seeing that with Russia, with China, with Iran in some cases. We're, we're not so good at understanding what that means. And one final point from me, if I could. The, this is all a very big success for Vladimir Putin. He has managed to layer Russia on top of U.S. allies. That was his goal, and he's got it. The problem that I fear is that we are so focused on the fact that Putin voted too many times in our election, that interfered in our election, that Russia's become a four-letter word, become something we don't really want to focus on except for the Mueller investigation, and we've become myopic and not realize the extent to which Russia has changed energy relationships in the Middle East. Russia has changed political relationships in the Middle East. And, you know, we better widen our view of Russia and deal with Russia and not just focus on what the president may or may not have done if we're going to pursue U.S. national interests and not just partisan political interests. And, and the other piece of that, which I very much agree with, is, is that what Russia considers a success in foreign policy falls far below what the U.S. considers a success. What China considers a success falls far below what the United States cons considers a success. Are we going to, to lower our expectations for how the world works, for what a success for diplomacy is? Or are we going to be able to raise it up? Are we going to be able to, to have like-minded allies try to raise the bar? Or is the world going to be a much less integrated place uh, going forward? And, and I think, frankly, the, the jury is still out on that. So John Alterman and Cliff Kupchin, thanks for joining us today. It was a terrific discussion. Uh, and I'm Frank Verastro, and you've been listening to Energy 360.